Hey friends, Carm here and welcome to the Town Hall Academy, episode 140. Hey, how many job interviews have you done as the interviewer? How many of those have sparked a great hire? Well, we're here to talk about that. From a technical standpoint, we start the interview much the same, right? You know, Dan mentioned three P's, right? And we sort of get into this and go, this is going to be like, this is going to be unlike any interview you've ever had. Uh, whatever questions you studied in uh, trade school and they told you to uh, be prepared for, you're not going to hear any of them. Um, We want to have a conversation. Welcome automotive aftermarketers to a remarkable results radio town hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey friends, Carm Capriato, the Automotive Aftermarket Podcast Guy, and so glad to welcome you to Academy Episode 140. And I want to thank my sponsor, Jasper Engines, for keeping the lights on for this very powerful asset to the aftermarket. You know, when your customer starts to talk about new vehicles, and of course, they do look and smell nice, but they come with seemingly endless monthly payments, higher license fees, and even higher insurance premiums. Now, there's a better solution to solve their safe and reliable transportation needs, remanufactured components from Jasper. Now, that means a new lease on life for your customer's trusted old friend. Go to jasperengines.com for more information. Hey, do you know I'm on a crusade to get more aftermarket professionals turned on to this podcast, Treasure of Wisdom? Now, at a recent industry event, I heard from people that expressed their appreciation for the powerful content library. Now, it's helped them open their views and perspectives by hearing their industry peers who share their select area of wisdom. So, do me a favor. Share this episode. I'm confident that your friend will appreciate it. So if you see one of my social posts, share it in your network. Now, if you're an email subscriber, then forward to a colleague in your network. I'm all about rising tides, so all ships rise, but it only happens when you help with the heavy lifting. Hey, now welcome Kurt Richardson, South Street Auto Care, Rochester, Michigan. Jim Hayes, General Manager at Pacific Motor Service in Monterey, California. And Dan Taylor, Coach at Transformers Institute. Hey, this episode is packed with human resource wisdom, and these guys know their stuff. And we get into interviewing tactics, form, and format that will help you build your bench and make a quality cultural hire that fits into your business like a glove. Hey everybody, it's 12 noon East Coast time, Carm Capriato, Town Hall Academy, the original all-encompassing automotive aftermarket panel discussion as we take a single subject each and every week and we tear it apart with our great automotive aftermarket panel. Interview tactics for a cultural fit. Long overdue out of 140 different episodes that we've got not tackled this yet, but I'm, I'm glad we are today. And I, I will tell you, I, I think it could really help change lives in our industry. And in fact, I mean lives of owners that struggle so much in trying to make a quality hire. You know, too many hot times we hire for aptitude instead of for attitude. Now, you've heard that over on the podcast over the 600 plus episodes we've done. And it's important to really get a good handle on it. You know, it's time to turn the tables and get ourselves a good hire fit that integrates into your culture. Now, so we're looking for a cultural fit. So my question is, is how's your culture? 
Now, we've done other episodes on that, and we're not here to help you create your culture. But if you've got the right culture and you're not doing the interviews right, this is what we're here to talk about. So, Kirk, I want to go to you first. Basically, you are a strong believer is that the first interview, there should be multiple interviews, and you've got a great strategy on that. But the first interview should be all about finding a cultural fit. Is that true? Hundred percent of our first interviews doesn't matter what position you know we're we're interviewing for is the same set of questions and they're all culturally based questions around behaviors we want to see within our company and you know that that align with our culture and we just went through our you know, we have five core values and we went through those five core values and sat down and created I don't know I mean we probably created something in the neighborhood of fifty questions that are you know related to our five values and we worked through as many of those questions as we can in an interview. And, you know, that's, that's where we start always. And, and if you can't get past that part, we don't, but skill means nothing to us. Kirk was so kind to share with me about 28 of those questions. And you were also willing to offer that we put it up on the website. So uh, on the, when, when this repurposes next Thursday, we'll have uh, these 27, uh, 28 questions of Kirk that help align that first interview cultural fit for some of those questions i think context is relevant um i, I sent that over i you know I, I when you asked me i said ah yeah sure put them out there but I, I do think context and understanding how we conduct our interviews is probably relevant uh, but i appreciate that and you know maybe we need to put a disclaimer up on that um but but let's go to uh to mr jim hayes jim you came on uh with me a while back uh with kevin donahoe your the owner of the shop, and we talked about standards and values, and I was very, very impressed with Pacific Motor uh, Service out there in California, how they actually put the standards and the values up on the homepage. And you talk about having a tool to be able to interview from and hire from, and that would be the standards and the values in the company. And uh, how important are those in your interview processes, Jim? Well, I think, uh, like Kirk said, it's paramount. They're probably the number one focal point. I have a big sign behind my on the wall behind me when we're interviewing and we bring them up every time we don't have a prescribed 50 question blotter that we go down, but we do have that very first conversation. We call it a drive by interview and uh, it's 30 or 45 minutes where we can talk to the individuals and get to understand where they're coming from. Their, their underpinnings or maybe even the substrate of their psychology when it comes to working. Are they viewing their, their job or their career path as responsibility? Is it just a job? Are they absolutely going to fit into our culture? You know, and the standards and values are very dear to us. It's something that we talk about daily with our entire staff. So we get to it right away. We kind of frame ourselves as outliers in the industry, and we're not your typical people. We're going to talk to you about culture and standards and values every day, all day. And that's kind of the, it's kind of the underpinnings of that first interview. You can pretty much find someone who uh, is... What's going on here, Jim? Uh, what kind of place you want me to join here? This looks really weird and off the wall. Well, precisely, I think that's the goal. I heard someone say at one point that uh, you're going to have a, well, I can't remember who it was or what the exact number was, but you're going to have a high percentage of turnover if you do short, sweet, quick interview hiring processes. We're actually trying to eliminate 95%. About 95% attrition rate is what we're looking for before we hire them. So we figure if we have a nice, rigorous process to go into it, then it's going to be less painful on the back end. Dan, if I have no culture, don't even bother to listen to this podcast, right? 
Yeah, you, you bring up a great point, Carm, and uh, would concur with everything Kurt and Jim have said so far. Uh, obviously, we I deal with shops all over the country, and I'm and I really am flabbergasted at times that that sometimes the organizations have been around for decades, and there's a vibe, there's a personality to their their company or their culture, but they haven't taken the time to write those things down. Right. So I. One of our first steps is we, we've got to stop and de, uh, define our mission statement. We have to stop, you know, vision and, and mission and some of those get mixed up and, and that's fine. We're not here to talk about those. But cultural values or principles or, or uh, statements or behavioral things that we expect from our employees, th- those can be written down and defined. And I know um, uh, reading through the, the information that we all shared before we got on this uh, panel it was amazing that the three of us have not talked at all, but yet every single thing we said within the comments that come, uh, came from each one of us really paralleled. They were just in a little bit different packages. But yeah, you've got to define your culture right out of the gates and dig deeper. You know, what does that mean as far as expectations, the environment? I think Kurt mentioned behavior uh, as well as Jim. You know, what are the behavioral standards that we conduct ourselves and, and interact with each other for 40, 50 hours a week? You know, what, what do we have? What, what are those standards and how are we going to behave? And, uh, you know, you, you hear these big words like respect, integrity, teamwork, uh, communication, learning. You've got to dig deeper. You need to really put examples down. What does that mean to respect? Well, you know, internally, it might mean that we stop, stop jumping to conclusions. We actively listen and, um, and, and hear what the other person's saying. We, we ask for clarification. We re- reiterate what that person just said. And then we give them um, respect in the sense of whatever they have to share has value. So that would be just one quick example of getting down into the nitty gritty of what does it look like to respect somebody uh, within our own organization and how do you, how do you behave and, and how do you conduct yourself within that one word. My little takeaway from what you just said, when you said confirm and clarify, I heard the word listen. And so, team, uh, are we supposed to talk a lot during the first interview or, or listen a lot? I think it has to remain conversational. It can't be one way. I think there's ample opportunity for both parties to speak, and we, we try to encourage the other person to ask as many questions as possible because it's got to be a mutual fit. Yep. We're inviting them to eliminate us as a likely team as we are reserving the right to eliminate them as a likely teammate in the process. I think it's got to be pretty equal. But why do we do that? Why, why do we typically talk? Are we selling on that first interview? Of course. I think the proportion in which you talk is probably in relation to who you are interviewing. Um, you know, I mean, I, you sit down across from a 22-year-old kid who's new in the industry, um, and, you know, they're 22. Uh, a lot of times they don't have a lot of uh, – <laughs> you ask a question such as, like, define integrity, and they don't – they've not thought through that a ton. Um, you know, and that is space to – uh, talk about your culture and the expectations of, you know, whatever company, you know, you're interviewing for, um, you know, and where you, you know, we sit down and talk to 50 year old people and you ask a question such as, uh, can you define empathy? And, you know, you, you get a lot more input. So, um, you know, I mean, as a general rule, you want them to speak, but, uh, you know, if, if you're asking questions that are tough and that they've not rehearsed for, uh, sometimes giving context and or uh, guidance as to what we you know what the question is about, um, you know that happens sometimes. You know I, I wouldn't say there's a hundred percent set rule. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I, I would I would submit to everybody though that 
those uh, you, you can start off every interview with uh, the, what I call the three P's, the purpose, process, and payoff of that interview. You know, what's the purpose? We're here to get to know each other. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask you some open-ended questions. There's no right or wrong to those questions. Try to get them, uh, like uh, Jim had just mentioned, conversational. Uh, and and as Kurt mentioned also, it's going to be situational with age, experience, and a bunch of things. But I'm going to ask you a bunch of open-ended questions, and there's no right or wrong to those. And then finally, I want to, I want to make sure that I answer some questions that you have that might have... Uh, come up in your mind that you or questions that you might have brought with you, and th- and then once that's established, you can start with some some fairly you know well received open ended questions from all your candidates. Like you know if if you could define what a great work environment for you, what does that look like to you? And of course, depending on what their age and their experience, I might give you a very short answer, and you just <laughs> why 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 tell mm-hmm. me more, and eventually they'll open up and and really convey what their thoughts in that arena are, and then you can start dissecting down whether they may or may not match up with uh, with your own culture by what they, what they shared with you. Thought, guys. Uh, I'm brand new to this. I'm really struggling as a shop owner to really uh, improve the people that I'm hiring. I'm not quite sure I've got this culture thing down right, but I've got two fabulous technicians and we really gel together as as a unit you know me and my my other team what just hit me as i was listening to you is that would you recommend that i sat down and you know i really said you know here's what i like about jim and here's what i like about bob and here's what i like about sally and write all that down and help me formulate what that ideal say next person would be based on the tendencies, the personalities, the traits of my current team? I think there's that. I think you have to be very intentional and hopefully most people by the time they own a shop have put enough thought into what their core idiosyncrasies are. Meaning a culture is going to be a product of you in many respects and what you want that to be has to be very intentional. So if you're in a shop situation, you've got your first two hires and they are a fantastic fit. Well, you got pretty lucky, I think. But that's a great time to start getting to, getting into the granular and finding out what makes your culture great. Like Peter Drucker yeah. said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I think the earlier the better, yes? Yeah, I, I would add something to that though, Carm, where uh, you know, I, I sat down and I involved basically everybody that worked with me and I said, Hey, we got to define a culture and what is it that is near and dear to your hearts? Um, the, the culture is defined by the people that you work with. Um, I could set a culture and go, this, this is the things that, uh, I value. And I could have seven people that I work with that don't go, I don't value that. Um, so coming to some common, some sort of common ground, you know, if you want to start, um, you know, sort of developing a culture and putting it on paper and such, um, developing, uh, you know, some input and some uh, involvement from the people that you work with. Because if you just show up and go, yep, this is the new culture, uh, and uh, whether that fits for you or not, or you disagree with that or not, it doesn't matter. This is the culture. Organically, a lot of it just takes place. Going and do SWOT analysis, I interview the majority of the employees, if not all of them. And give you an example, just a, a couple months ago, we were at an organization had three shops going to their fourth shop, and they didn't actually have these things written down. They had a, a wonderful culture, and you could sense certain things when you talk to folks. So I started asking them, you know, how would you define this culture? What does it feel like when you come to work? What's the atmosphere? 
What's the interaction with your colleagues? And I started uh, just turning up words and I kept track of all these things, put them on a spreadsheet. I said, guys, here's the deal. You have, you know, I've interviewed 35 of your folks the last uh, couple of days. And here are some common themes that keep coming up. And one of them was teamwork. And then I said, you know, your job is to go back and help define what teamwork looks like to you guys. And I think they ended up coming up, you know, with you're not selfish. You're, mm -hmm. you're cheerful to help the guy next to you. The team goals are more important than the individual. Uh, we endorse friendships outside of work. And we pitch in and take care of each other and our clients when, when somebody's down. And so they came back and defined what teamwork looked like for them. And then now they can use that as a filter. And of course, this is obviously what the whole conversation's about. How do you interview people and, and run them through that filter? But it comes, it comes organically. It comes from the people that are already there. They help establish what the culture is. And it's, it's unspoken, but it, it definitely has overtones. And, and there's a feel and a vibe to it. And you're going to have a culture that is specific to your local community. Meaning, if Kirk, for instance, he said he's buying a shop or two right now, and he may own a shop or two. I don't know a lot about Kirk yet, but he's going to have a, a desire to have a company culture. But if he has three or four units, there's going to be a there's going to be a local culture that is predicated by the local management, right? Even though you may have, for instance, a Nordstrom, which is a nationwide, worldwide company, they desire to have one culture, but they're really going to break that down to making sure they hire the right type of people to fit those roles so that their local cultures will be a, at least a reasonable reflection mm -hmm. of their company desired culture. I found it fascinating with uh, something that Kirk said a little bit ago, Kirk, you said, uh, you know, you sat down and asked the team, Hey, we've got to build this culture here. What do you value? What if they said something to you, Kirk, that you didn't value? Would you, you're not looking to bring everything that they want into your company if it doesn't match you. No, I mean, you're looking for thoughts, ideas, right? And then you're going to take that and you're going to like shape that and whittle that down into something that's core, right? And is to the best of your ability shared by everybody in the building. Um, you know, and, that, and that's where we started. No, I mean, we had, you know, like Dan was talking about, we had, I don't know, probably 50 words thrown out, you know, 50 sort of concepts or thoughts. And we had to, you know, and part of my job as the leader was to take that and maneuver that into um, you know, uh, something that's core. Uh, when you sort of put that over everybody, you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Multiple of these five uh, values show up in basically everybody. Um, and that was sort of my job. And I said, yeah, okay, cool. Now we can say these are some core values. Is everybody, uh, you know, we'll use the term perfect in all five facets of our core values? No, not even close. Um, you know, that, that's foolish. Um, but uh, there is a, the bulk of the values reside in everybody we hire. Yeah, Carmen, another way you can look at this is, is these become like social contracts. They're unwritten, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. once they're identified as, as values that everyone at least strives to, to abide mm -hmm. by, and, and, and uh, like Kurt just mentioned, it's, you don't expect people to be perfect in every category no. every day, um, but you do expect them at least to adhere to every day they're striving to, to do well in these areas. And that, that maybe one of the values is that uh, constructive feedback or uh, speaking into that person's journey that you're allowed to say, you know what, uh, you know, these are one of our course values and the way whatever just happened with uh, you and Jimmy doesn't really reflect that. Um, could you, could you take a look at that again? And it's a much softer way of, of correcting uh, folks and, and having them get back on board. But these are really, they're really social contracts they are unwritten, but this is the way we all agree to conduct ourselves, interact and behave while we're here in, in this environment that we spend so much time with. Yes. This would all be 
discussed in the hiring process, but a lot of this is downstream from the hiring process. This is yeah. stuff to maintain a culture versus to create a con- context yeah. within which we hire for that culture. Hey, I'm with Brian Weeks from ATC Auto Center. Brian, why Jasper engines and transmissions? So I think Jasper, the reason why we uh, chose to deal primarily with Jasper is uh, the quality of the product and the people. I know that it is a uh, associate-owned company, but it's more about the people. They do what they do uh, in this industry that is tough, and they stay on top of the cutting-edge engineering, changing and maybe developing ways around uh, known problems and issues. So they're adding value. They're making things better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, They're taking a situation that you may have a common failure with and going in, taking it apart, going through the engineering, the R&D department saying, okay, how can we make this better? And then from that standpoint, it comes to us that at the end of the day, the end user gets much more value for the dollar that they spend. Hey, Brian, thanks for your time. Carm, thank you. The title of this is Interview Tactics for a Cultural Fit. Let's get into some tactics here, okay? Uh, share with us uh, what, you know, how you would start out a- an interview, a brand new, fresh interview, first time in, and, and let's just have some open dialogue, some fun discussing the process. And if a couple of great questions come up, because you've all submitted me that, you know, some questions, let's toss the audience a couple of, uh, you know, freebies here and bring some of your question ideas to the plate. Who wants to start? Who wants to start out? What would we do on the on this first interview. And oh, by the way, I do know that many of you would love to have a spouse dinner and go to a deeper level and maybe interview two or three, but let's talk about how we start. I think basically we cover it just as we even use the words, this is a drive-by interview. We're not hiring anyone here. We're basically we're having a conversation to see if there's a fit, to see if there's a personality fit, at least a foundational technical fit, and then above all, is there a, a social fit? Is this going to be a place where you can succeed? Yeah, I mean, from a technical standpoint, we start the interview much the same. Like, you know, Dan mentioned three Ps, right? You know, we sort of get into this and go, this is going to be like, this is going to be unlike any interview you've ever had. Uh, whatever questions you studied in uh, trade school and they told you to uh, be prepared for, you're not going to hear any of them. Um, we want to have a conversation. You know, and the more, the more you ask questions, the more you participate in this, the better this goes for both parties because we're looking for a fit. And we've had people leave our interviews. We've had people go on our interviews. This is the strangest thing that's ever happened. I don't think I want to work here. And we go, cool. We don't want you to work here. Yeah, and that's where we start. And we we we've had five hour initial interviews. No joke. And uh, you know, I'm sort of in a position to do that, I guess. But people want to talk. The more they'll talk, the more I'll listen. Um, especially when they get comfortable and they're willing to talk for five hours, you learn an immense amount about that person. And I want to know, my job is to make sure I bring somebody into our company that everybody else wants to spend 45, 50 hours a week with. Sure. It's part and, of our goal to create that circle of trust and them to understand that it's our, our yep. purview to protect the people that are already in that circle. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I bet I, I, say those exact words. I mean, I don't use circle, but I, I say things like, yeah, that's my job. It's my job to make sure I don't bring somebody in here that our people don't want to be around. Hey, Dan, before you chime in, uh, Kirk, that five-hour interview, did you hire that person? Oh, I don't know. I've done multiple four-plus-hour interviews, so I could tell you I've done a four-hour interview for sure, and I didn't hire somebody. Um, we went and got some lunch and hung out, and 
wasn't the right fit. I really liked the guy. It was as good for you as it was for them. I mean, you had a learning moment there, yeah? Yeah. I, I, so literally, I mean, at the end, I looked at the guy and said, I just don't think you're a fit for what we need. You know, he was an inexperienced technician, and he moved up here from Florida, and he was a, I probably shouldn't say that, he'll know who he is now, but um, super nice guy, and he said, hey, man, can we hang out? <laughs> um, I don't have so, any friends in Florida. I mean, I don't have any friends in Michigan. How far did you go before you already knew that this wasn't going to be a fit? Was it three hours and a half or was it 30 minutes? It, it, so generally speaking, I'll know within half an hour to an hour, um, you know, and that, and that turned far more relational. I mean, we just started talking, um, you know, but I have interviewed people for four hours where I go, mm, I think you're a good technician. I also think, um, you know, Carm doesn't like if I swear. So I think you might be a jerk, you know, and it's my job to sit here and just poke and poke and poke and poke and poke until I either am convinced you're not a jerk or you've proven to me that you are. Um, you know, so that, that one was far more relational, um, you know, but yeah, I've, I've sat in the room because, you know, every, everybody's, uh, it's a honeymoon period. Everybody's, you know, going to give you their best answers to make themselves look the best they can. And I sit in the room and I go, my job is to figure out all the reasons I don't want to hire you. Sort of how I approach it, which is this, you know, from a tactical standpoint, it's just question on question, right? You know, I've, I ask a question, they give an answer. I'm going to ask another question about their answer. They give me a question. I'm going to ask another question sometimes with some context because they don't always like my questions. So how many people get to the second interview, would you say, on average? Uh, less than 50%, honestly. Um, you know, we also, you know, I, I interview perpetually. I, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty open about that with most people. I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing when I don't have a spot, honestly. That's a great point, everyone. The quote-unquote shortage, you've got to be always recruiting. Well, if you hope to fill the spot with someone who meets that culture, I think you have to have someone in the pipeline because lives change. You could have the best, the best guy, the best cultural fit on your staff walk out the door because there was an illness or financial or hit. Yes. Well, he hit the lottery. Yeah. Or maybe hopefully then they just invest in the company. But I, I say, yeah. Um, you need some pipeline. You need that pipeline full. At least yeah. To some yeah. extent. I mean, and that's another cultural facet that I, you know, in an interview that I'll talk up. I go. I, we're not necessarily hiring right the second things happen. And I mean, here's the deal. If I, if I become enamored with somebody, I think they're a wonderful cultural fit or, you know, they're, they're a wonderful cultural fit and a wonderful technical fit or skills fit. I'll go and grow the business if I need to. Um, you know, and I've done that in the past. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's my job to find all of the most talented people I can that fit our culture. And I'm relentless on that. And if you have that pipeline full of candidates, not full, but at least you have somebody to fill a spot, you can prune right now. Right now Mm -hmm. as a team, our group is reading a book by Henry Cloud called uh, Necessary Endings. Mm -hmm. And it's basically outlining the fact that you have to prune. There's always Mm got to be pruning going on because there's going to be a, maybe a long time fit has become not so fit anymore. (laughs) And that gives you the freedom Mm -hmm. to prune when necessary as well. Yeah. That's a good term. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to the pruning term. What was my takeaway from this interview? Pruning. Well, I mean, if you're a large enough organization and you got 14 people, yeah, you're, you're, uh, yeah, I guess you're a perpetual pruner. That might be, uh, you know, that's, that's probably an appropriate term. I assume, you know, Jim's probably managing quite a few people. And yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, there's, there's pruning that happens. And hopefully not, but you know, it's a fact of life. I mean, it one is. of the lines in that book is if you're not pruning, you're probably keeping too much of what's not needed. Uh, yeah, I would generally speaking agree with that some level. Hey, Dan, initial tactics, uh, you know, on that first interview. Any ideas for us? 
Well, I'd certainly agree with both uh, what Kurt and Jim said. Yeah, you know, a lot of this is the mentality, and and what happens is people become resentful towards interview, and they re- they become resentful towards the whole thing. One of the things I appreciate about uh, uh, both Jim and Kurt is they've embraced this, and this is part of their culture. They're going to have a great interviewing process to to make sure people don't get on the bus that don't belong on the bus. So I think one of the key things is is you. I I don't tell people they're interviewing. I tell them we're going to have a conversation. I just want to get to know you. One of the word pictures I use is, uh, you know, we're really looking for a round hole, round peg. Uh, you pick your shape, star, doesn't matter. But at the end, we, I would hope, you know, Mr. Candidate, that, that you're in the same place we're at. We want you to, to look at us and we want to look at you and make sure this is a great match. So that's part of that, you know, the purpose process and payoff. I get that out right out of the gates that this is a conversation to get to know you better. And then just like both these guys have mentioned, it's question after question, allow them to ask them some questions when appropriate. Uh, I, I guess I have never done a five hour interview. So I, I appreciate that. I I'm, I'm probably in the, the, the spot where, you know, after thousands and thousands of interviews, I, I usually know within a half an hour to an hour of, of teasing up certain things. I'm looking for themes. I'm looking for key words that are enticing and then dig a little deeper on those and, and, and have these folks explain what that means uh, to them or what the experience was. And I know some of the information we had on here was, uh, you know, behavioral based questions or anecdotal uh, type questions of getting them to tell stories, getting them to tell what happened in different situations. And that really is how you, you get to know oh, yeah. somebody because at the end of the day, and I share this with my key leadership group, uh, past performance will predicate future performance every time. Past performance will predicate future performance. I disagree with that. Okay. In this industry, I've encountered technicians in interviews where I go, you've never had a chance, right? You basically have been victim of, you know, uh, poor shop management or poor shop ownership. Right. And this is where I can, you know, I, I can tease some of those things out. You know, you're, you're talking about where I go, actually, I think you're a pretty hard worker. You're probably a pretty good dude. I don't think you've ever been given a chance. I don't think you've ever been given a chance to show what you're capable of said this publicly i mean we've taken some guys off the trash heap and uh sort of made them look like superstars because not because of anything we've really done we've just put them in a spot where they can showcase what they actually have i think you'll get both i think there's logic in both statements right sure they would be blind to take everyone who's performed poorly in the past and not give them a shot if you see the culture fit yes but there are those outliers that do succeed but they're, you know, the, if you want to talk about effect size, if their past performance over the course of 12 or 15 years has been moderate or mediocre, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to turn into superstars. But if they're mm-hmm. a young guy, I think Correct. Kurt's absolutely right. You yep. know, a guy who may have been a loop tech for three years, yep. who's got fantastic diagnostic ability, and you won't discover yep. that. But a lot of that for us, but I may be a little closed-minded here, but I t- can typically shake a hand, look in an eye, see what they're wearing when they show up, what time they show up, what their resume states. And within five or 10 minutes, I'm either in or out on the next interview. For me personally, it's, and I'm not always right here, but it would be an exercise in futility. I think generally speaking, to a fault, maybe I'm either checked in or checked out mm-hmm. after the first 15 minutes of an interview. Yeah. I by no means am recommending five-hour interviews. Generally, our interviews are an hour, hour and a half. I don't even have uh, five-hour energy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I, I, I've sat in interviews because they'll talk and they're interesting and they're engaging. And, and part of it is um, it's recruiting. Yeah. You know, sure. when, when you can sit in an interview for an hour and a half and that person gets to talk about themselves and tell stories and um, ask questions and learn things, um, you know, there's, there's a bond that's created that um, isn't there if, you know, we're asking the, the standard, uh, you know, interview questions. 
Right. Can I elaborate a little bit on what Jim said about, uh, and, and respectfully disagreeing with at least part of what I said? Yeah. Um, I, I think what you've done is a great job of asking those questions deeper to find out what the personality traits of that person are, right? So if they were, and I, I've had interviews with technicians, a lot of them, that uh, they've been in really bad scenarios. They were treated, mis- mistreated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my, my thoughts are right, and, and is that they're running things through past filters, right? They're Always. looking for similar things. And, and as long as you're stable in your own uh, culture, your own environment, how you guys conduct yourselves, what, what you offer that person, you, you can, you can uh, have people recover and you can have people, uh, uh, you know, rebirthed uh, from past bad experiences. Uh, but it's really important to know, you know, how much garbage are they going to bring with you? Because you right. certainly don't want to contaminate right. what you already have going. So. Uh, again, I think you, you bring up a really valid point. If you dig deep enough with folks, sometimes at the core of the being of who they are, they're really an awesome person. You know, they really do care about other people and they really do have great work ethic and they, they want to be on a team that, and they want to come to work that they feel great working there and yeah. be part of that uh, environment and contributing. Uh, but you've got to dig through that stuff to get to that spot and, and make sure. And, and I, was, I had an interview just a couple of weeks ago with a guy, 11 years at an absolutely toxic environment. And I said, I asked him just a simple question. What if he had been here that whole time? The guy almost broke down in tears and said, yeah. I can't imagine. I'd be a foreman. I might even be the manager of this store by now. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very enlightening to me to go, wow, this, this poor guy was in such a harmful environment for such a long period of time. And it's great that he's in a culture that really uh, cares about him. He's going to prosper. And it, it's just wonderful to see that. So great point, uh, yeah. Curtis, for well, us digging deeper on some of that yeah. stuff, folks. And I think, I think great performance prior is a wonderful indicator of future great performance. Would I, you know, let me, as I, you know, think about that, I think that's a wonderful uh, thought. You know, yes, if you're if you've been a, a top performer, you're likely to continue to be a top performer. Um, the problem is I don't sit across from many top performers because top performers don't go looking for jobs because right. shops keep them. I know I don't let mine walk out the door. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I don't I don't yeah. sit across from many. Well, there aren't very many top performers. That's uh, <laughs> hence the name top performer. That's right. Uh, I would love each of you to chi- share. The interviewing process, interview one, what would two be like if it goes into three and four? Is there a spouse thing? Is there an offer time? If you could quickly cover that for our audience, obviously this will be a lifetime archive out there that people will listen to in the future. What are your, what are your best tactics when it comes to that? You know, on the surface, what we're looking for really is that initial bit. And then I actually send them documents. One is to write their own personal mission statement of how working with us will accomplish their dreams. And then another one is a budget. Can they afford to live on what we make or what we're going to pay them so that they can come into this thing knowing, yeah, I can, I can survive and I want to be a part of that culture. And we also get to see how they write and how they think from an abstraction standpoint. So I can take my time and dissect their mission statement. There may, may be one sentence, maybe a whole page, some of them come back and I can really dig deep into there on my own time. Then when they come in, the second interview is really discussing those topics. Then from there we go into uh a personality assessment. You know, I want to give them, I send them all a disc assessment, if you all know what that is. And that gives me a snapshot of what their personality is. And there's not a right or wrong there, but it tells me where they might fit or if they might fit and uh, what role they might fit in best or how to deal with them in conflict, how to deal with them under pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So I start to build a, a nice understanding of what sort of person this is over the course of two or three weeks. And then I can start to formulate different questions, different ideas of, of how that's going to fit. 
And then we're very clear the whole way through of our culture, the expectations, the sort of standards we have and the values, the, the policies that we have, uh, and then all the way through. And then at the end of our process, we do attempt to have a, a dinner with their spouse or their significant other because that gives us a chance to see how their spouse deals with them. Sometimes they're crazy. So you want to keep them out of the building. Sometimes it gives the spouse an opportunity to say, hey, this my, my husband or my wife is saying A, but they're really not A, they're B, and it's not going to be a great fit. Yeah. So it gives, gives a, that third party because they're going to be part of that family. And we can give them an opportunity to disqualify their spouse. We can disqualify their spouse based on that interaction. And because, as you all know, being business owners, if you've got a crazy significant other on the other end, it's going to affect what happens at work. So that's kind of our final process. And if it gets down to that, they're probably 95% likely to get an offer. But there has been one situation or two that the, the spouse has actually brought up issues that have, have made it clear that it's not going to be a good long-term fit. So, And that takes six to eight weeks for us. It's, no, it's not a short party. It's a long process. And hopefully by having that long six to eight week process, we can also weed out those that are just looking for a job and not for a good cultural fit. What I've discovered over almost 15 years of recruiting within this industry for different um, uh, clients, some uh, positions or roles, you can you can make them jump through hurdles. Uh, and I mean hurdles in a good way in that what Jim was talking about and Kurt was talking about earlier about weeding people out. Uh, I have written questions I sent out to service advisors and managers, and I'm looking for a reaction time, the answers to the questions. Can they write in a, uh, you know, in a type, typing-wise, can they answer the questions articulately? Looking for grammar errors. I don't get real hung up on that, but I at least look for those things. And then the next thing is I, I go through this uh, process of just getting to know them. And then third, we end up uh, usually having them uh, do a face-to-face. We get a feel for them. I don't even want to know what they look like. I just want to know who they are first. And then later on, because I don't want to run through my own faulty filters uh, on judging people. So I, I don't see anybody until probably the third interview or fourth interview. We also run through people through team interviews where everybody gets to have a conversation with them. And then finally, a working interview. And then a lot of times, there's even an interview beyond that to get a final uh, stamp on them. So I think the key to all this, and, and uh, you know, Jim's already mentioned this, elongated hiring process. This is not a desperation. You really take your time and make sure they're a good match. And the other, the other dividend that pays in, in ROI is these guys all talk to each other. So even if you don't hire them, they had a great uh, they had a great interaction, a great experience with you. They'll t- tell their friends and neighbors, and it just makes recruiting a whole lot easier moving forward. We've done all of those things and still do many of those things. Um, for service advisors, this is what I can tell you. This is the most telling. I mean, we can get past the cultural portion of the uh, the interview and we get into a you know a second interview with skills. We just roll the play. We just role play. And it's, you know, we have 20 questions. We go and grab five tickets from downstairs and we go, let's walk through this process. They're like, I'm going to, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to be the customer. You're going to do the write up. You're going to do the, you know, you're going to sell the job. You're going to do the follow up. You're going to do the updates. And we just role play, especially if they have experience. I mean, we've hired service advisors without experience. And now we're more into what are your instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, but for service advisors that have experience, uh, we can, you can, 
check their skills. I mean, it's hard to check technician skills. Uh, I'm, if you guys have any wonderful insight on that, I mean, that's a wonderful question. What questions do you ask to figure out if a guy can uh, fix a car well and you know in a timely manner? Yeah, um, we actually do. We we actually bug cars, and then we have a working interview uh, in lots of grace. But you know, we we want to know mm-hmm. how they go about. Uh, Diag work and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and different things. So that has worked really successful. We use the 90-day probationary period for that stuff, yeah. right? Yep. It's a critical yep. part. Step 10 and 11 of our process is the 90-day probation, where it's actually part of the hiring process. And we mm-hmm. are probably is probably push harder and stronger on cultural fit, on expectations, on a daily basis in that 90 mm-hmm. days because that's part of the hiring process. If you make it through 90 days, you're in, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because then the following 90 days, the next 90 days, we're setting more goals, more yep. setting more standards and yep. raising the bar a little higher. Yep. And that's how we go about what you're prescribing to that role play, right? We give them the 90 days to role mm-hmm. play everything out, which is a good time to cut people loose. You know, any time between the first and 90th day is pretty easy. Yep. Um, and that really gives us a, a good opportunity to see them under fire, so to speak. This was absolutely great. I learned a, t- a ton of stuff myself. And I've done a ton of interviews in my lifetime. Got a favorite interview question you could share? Why do you want to work here? Uh, Define the word empathy. Mine's probably a bigger picture uh, question. I I want them to tell me what what's the the best environment for them uh, to be uh, you know to be conducive for them to be happy, do well, perform, um, really enjoy their their work. Thank you to Kirk Richardson, South Street Auto Care, Rochester, Michigan. Thank you so much, Kirk. Jim Hayes, Shop General Manager at Pacific Motor Service, Monterey, California. And Dan Taylor, Coach Consultant, Transformers Institute. Thanks, Carm. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time... 